The Grazadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Let me start with just a couple of questions that I'm going to open up to the audience. We want to give you guys an opportunity, so be thinking about what you would like to hear from Jed. Um, you talked about some of the sort of difficult decisions you've made that haven't always been real popular. So how do you decide sort of which punches to take? You use that term, you know, you're going to have to take some punches. How do you decide which punches to take that you can work through and are really going to get you to a better place with, and know which ones would knock you out and you shouldn't take them? Uh, like, like hiring our general manager. Mm -hmm. Like if I believe that he's the right person and the right leader, you know, it's not going to knock anybody's socks off day one. They, they want you to hire, you know, the guy that was at, you know, the, the last team that won the Super Bowl because that's on the top of their mind. So you have to be able to withstand that criticism. You know, when, when a senator is attacking you or a mayor is attacking you, you have to understand that they, in some form or fashion, represent the city of San Francisco and that's sort of their backing. So you can't go out and attack them because you're attacking the city of San Francisco. You have to be able to absorb some of that and just, you know, be very neutral, answer the questions the same way every single time, and just know that you're going to put all that energy into proving them wrong over time, not trying to argue that they're wrong, because you can't win that argument. So you talked about, when you were talking about kind of growing up and everything, you know, being on a private jet when you were six, flying to games, you grew up in a family that's a billionaire family, high-profile people. Um, and I've talked recently, I was commenting to someone that lives up in this area that you were going to speak here, and they, they serve on a nonprofit board with you here in this area. And they were talking about what a nice guy you are and how sort of normal you are in spite of sort of the world that you live in. How have you sort of managed to stay grounded given kind of the world you grew up in and the world you live in now in a way that people would say that about you? I think, like anybody's grandparents, your grandparents are going to spoil you. And when your grandfather's a billionaire, it's a lot easier to spoil you than if he's not. <laughs> but every grandparent wants to spoil right. their grandkids. You know, my father lost his father when he was 13 years old. Mm -hmm. He put himself through Notre Dame. My mother went to St. Mary's, the all-girls school across the street from Notre Dame before they were co-ed. That's where they met. And my mother was a very grounded person. My father was obviously a very hard-driven, grounded person. And I mean, the experience that I had growing up, you know, my mom would get us ready for school, you know, make us breakfast. My dad would take us to school. She would go to work. At 2.30, she would leave work. She would come pick us up. We'd go home, and then she'd make dinner for the family. And probably four or five days a week, my grandfather would come over for dinner. So you had a different set of people around that were trying to keep you grounded, and also people that were showing you that, you know, the, the stars are, are there for your reaching. Like, just, just go after mm -hmm. it. And I think it was a great combination of those things for me and a family that was, was very grounded and you know, very normal with all the other sort of you know, things that most people don't have growing up. And, and they, made you, they made you appreciate it. Like my father's rule for going to games. I didn't come to a lot of games in San Francisco growing up because I was in Youngstown, Ohio. So I went to a lot of the away games. So it was easy to fly to a game and fly back that night or fly for a weekend and you know, go to Washington, D.C. and learn the history in Washington, D.C., then go to a game and then come back. But his rule was always, if you go to a sporting event, you need to go to school the next day. You know, no matter what game it is, if you're going to go to a Monday night game, we get back at 4 or 5 in the morning, like, you're going to school the next day. And he held to that rule 
And if you didn't go to school, you weren't allowed to go to anything ever. And that's, you know, Bob can tell you, he, he works with my dad as well. He can be strict every once in a while. And that's just how it was. Yeah. So you, you had to earn the right to do those things. And did you learn things through that experience that will influence how you raise your son, Jackson? Yeah, I mean, I think there are things that, that I've learned. And, you know, I think I was fortunate to grow up in Youngstown where I was farther removed. You know, being a, a real estate mogul is a lot different than owning a sports team. So here, there's so many eyeballs on you. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do you create, you know, a world where Jackson understands what, what his responsibilities are, being a part of our family, but also he can just be a normal kid. Because I was able to be, just be a normal kid and play Little League and play basketball and do those types of things and, and not really have, you know, any, any weight on my shoulder. So that's really what I'm trying to figure out. How do you, how do you create a normal life in a, in a world where it's, it's not normal? Right. Well, good. Let me open the, question, the questions to the audience. Who would like to ask Jed a question? Right over here. We've got a microphone coming. It's kind of in line with your last question there. You know, now you're fairly young, and you, you, you've got a lot of, you know, mentors in front of you. How do you manage the, the, the voices of influence uh, and, and control all of that? You know, I, I think when you manage people, whether they are, you know, senior to you or you know, more famous than you are, I, I think you just have to be yourself. You have to be genuine. You have to be direct with people. You know, the, the, the hardest thing for me is trying to separate sort of the character that everybody plays on TV from who they actually are in reality and making sure that they don't take themselves too seriously either. And I think when you talk very openly and directly with people, they appreciate that. Because for the most part, people that are stars, players, things like that, they, they don't always hear somebody not be a strict parental figure, but somebody that will walk them through things and, and sort of show them the right way to do things. And, and I think that's something that's very difficult. You know, the, the, the guys that we've hired, you know, I hired Gideon Yu to be the president of the 49ers. And I've known Gideon through, you know, several charitable organizations. Before that, he was at, you know, Coastal Ventures. Before that, he was a CFO at Facebook. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, well Gideon's difficult to deal with, and he's this and he's that. Well, yeah, he is, but he's one of the most talented people that I've ever been around, and we push each other. And I think if you, if you create an environment where people are challenged every day and they want to create something, they want to keep pushing, that's, that's what's hard. I, I don't know how many people are from the Southern California here, but you look at Phil Jackson and you hear, well, you know, Phil Jackson, he won, you know, but he always coached superstars. Well, I'm, I'm watching other coaches coach those same superstars and they don't have the same results. You, you have to know how to motivate people and it's, you know, it's a skill to be able to motivate the, the most highly talented people and to keep them energized and invigorated and, and, and present on a daily basis. Other questions from the audience? So, so my Uncle Eddie was a huge influence on me. You know, both, both watching him grow up in the, in the game, and, and I think it's like parenting. You know, you don't really know as a five-year-old 
like if your parents have a healthy relationship and treat you with love and kindness, but you, you can feel it. And you don't know what's right and wrong, but when you watch the way my uncle managed the football team, like it's how you're supposed to manage a professional football team. You establish your vision, you establish the goals that you expect people to achieve, and you put the best team around you and you drive and motivate them to achieve those goals and to live up to your expectation of winning with class. So I watched him do that, and I think I, I learned through him, not where he was teaching me, you know, Jed, this is how you pick a coach, or this is how you do this, this is how you do that. You just watched him. And you know, as a kid, you'd be amazed at how perceptive your children are and kids that are five, six, seven years old. Anytime I'm in a group, like the kids that are younger, always ask the best questions because they're not afraid of, well, you know, how's this going to come across? You know, is this going to be something that's offensive? They don't have that filter. And when you see somebody at a young age do things like the way my uncle did, it, it certainly, it builds your sort of foundation. And now to be able to pick up the phone and say, you know, Uncle Eddie, like thinking about hiring Jim Harbaugh as a coach, you know, you hired a guy from Stanford, you know, how, how'd you do it? You know, how did you motivate? How did you do this? How did you do that? It's, it's a lot easier for me to ask those questions now while I'm in the actual job. And he's been, he's been fantastic. Questions, everyone? Let's wait till we get the microphone. We have folks watching this on live stream, so we want to make sure that they can hear the questions as well. Uh, Dan House, what drives your moral compass? What, you know, when, when you have unlimited capital, unlimited resources, unlimited everything, what drives the moral compass? Is it spiritual? Is it moral? Is it given, come from your parents? What drives that for you? Because you seem like a guy that makes a good decision. So what drives your moral compass? Well, I don't know that I would say it's unlimited. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I, I think, again, what drives the moral compass is watching my grandfather who stayed in the same house that he built in 1955, and he passed away in 1994, right before we won our last Super Bowl. And he built his house like less than a quarter of a mile from the office. He woke up, he passed away when he was 86, you know, but for the last three months of his life, he was going to the office at like 4.45 every morning, and be, he'd be home at six. And his, his thing was, you know, I'm going to get in, I'm going to get my work done, but I'm going to be home for dinner and I'm going to be with my family. And I think my mother carried that on in her own way, where she might not have been at the office as much as, as her father was, but she was with us and she made the kids her priority along with her, her work environment. And you know, my father, who's a medical doctor, definitely doesn't get enough credit for the success that he's had in his career. And, you know, I watched him build three very, very successful medical laboratories, sell them and do very, very well. And if you weren't in the DeBartolo family, you know, you'd be very successful on your own. But when you're compared to Mr. DeBartolo Sr., Mr. DeBartolo Jr., my mother, you know, it's like, well, you know, that's just kind of an afterthought. But, you know, he did very well for himself. But in that process, you know, he coached me in baseball. He coached my fifth and sixth grade basketball team. Like we still have pictures, like I still have that picture of him on my desk of our sixth grade basketball team in the championship. And we all signed a ball to my dad. You know, and those are things that I remember that he found a way when he was trying to build his own successful organization and his own success for himself. You know, and he didn't have to do that. He could have you know, had some cush job that my grandfather gave him and he could have just sat there and collected a paycheck and done nothing. That's not what he did. And I watched him push himself when he didn't have to. 
but I also watched him find time for his kids the way my mom did, the way other people in my family did. And I think that's what really keeps me grounded is that ultimately it doesn't matter how much money you have or what success you have. If you don't have a good family life and you don't have that love and, and, and trust and you can't be present in any of your success, then it's just not worth it. We'll go here and then over to here. Mike. Yeah, uh, microphone. I have a question concerning your, I can assume that you're probably among the, uh, one of the younger executives on, on, the, uh, on the 49ers. Is that true? Maybe not on the 49ers, but in the NFL. We are definitely the youngest executive team in the history of okay. professional sports. But you have, you have some uh, older people on your team that uh, have a lot of wisdom in, and uh, that can offer you uh, in terms of managing the, the corporation. How do you, uh, how do you um, uh, uh, perform the decision making? Do you, is it a collaborative decision making? Is it uh, you, you, you look at the... Um, the other people on your uh, on your executive team, and you bounce ideas off of them when you when you hire a um, a good coach like the, the wild man uh, Harlow. <laughs> <laughs> you can see the the wildness in his eyes when he's on the field. But how do you how do you do that? How do you make those decisions with with um, in your team? I mean, some of the decisions are are just mine, uh, and and some of the decisions like when we're talking about the technology in the building, like I'm not a technology guy, so. I tried to find the best people that can help us build out our vision. And when you try to sell that vision to people and you explain what you want to do, I mean, we have a chief technology officer that could be the CTO at any of the tech companies. Came from Facebook, he was their IT director, built out all their internal platforms. And when you talk to him, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't begin to tell you anything more than the 30,000 foot level of our technology stack. I know what I wanted to do, but I couldn't build it out. I, I, I have no idea what that means. So that's where you're talking to somebody that actually knows what they're doing, and you empower them to, to have their own decision-making process. And I think that's what everybody wants. They want the ability to, to be able to do things and to fail. And I think we always talk about it, and, and especially people here that are in the Valley, failure is a good thing. You know, Gideon, who's our president, I always tease him, like one of the companies that he was part of founding, you know, he was at YouTube very early on, Facebook very early on, and he was also at a company called TheMan.com. You know, and I always tease him and we tease each other, but it's, that was something that he was passionate about and it didn't work. But he wears that on his sleeve the same way he would wear his success at Facebook or his success at YouTube. So it's a combination of me knowing what I want and trying to explain it to our team and also taking the input and working together. And they know that, you know, for the most part, I'm not gonna go against something that every single person says, and we really haven't had that come up. But I will stop something that everybody else might want to do if I don't think it's the right thing and doesn't fit with our vision for the 49ers. And we've had some of those things come up, and, and that's really how we work as an executive team. And I try to empower our team to, to make their own decisions, and if they fail, you can't, you can't berate people for failing. You can't embrace a culture of failure, but then beat somebody up because they do. And my, my dad always taught us that in baseball. It's like, you know, you, you charge a ground ball, you go pick it up. And if you make an aggressive mistake, you make an aggressive mistake. Don't sit on your heels and let it come to you and then let it take a bad bounce and then you make an error. Go after it, and if you miss it, you miss it. But you're going after it. And, and I think that's, you know, that's kind of how I live my life. Go after it, and if you fail, Pick yourself up and we'll go try it again. 
We have a question over here, two over here. So. What was the uh, disconnect that uh, Coach Singletary had that you saw in your professional opinion? You know, I think he set expectations way too high. And when things didn't go the way he wanted them to, he wasn't, he wasn't sure how to respond. So he talked about you know, coming off a seven and nine year. I think most people were excited after the, the 2009 season. Going into 2010, there were high expectations. It was, you know, we're going to be 16-0, and 0, then 19-0, and 0, and be Super Bowl champions. And you lose the first game, and it's like, okay, like everything that we talked about, like now we can't achieve any of the goals that we set. And he wasn't quite sure how to bring everything back. I watch him as the interim head coach take a guy like Mike Martz, who isn't necessarily the easiest offensive coordinator to work with, and he got Mike Martz to work within the system. And I think he just got too big at being a head coach where he, wasn't af he, he was afraid to admit, and I don't know how to handle this situation, and, and I need some help. And I think that's one of the things that I watch with Trent, I watch with Jim. They'll ask for help for things. Now, they might not do it in public, but they'll ask me for my opinion of, hey, you know, I have, I have this player doing this. You know, you, you deal with people. Like, how would, how would you deal with this? You know, let me pick your brain on it. And I might not be right, but to be able to have those conversations at least gives you a chance to be successful. If you're going to try to hide your faults and you're going to try to cover them up, they're, they're going to be exposed at some point. And I think that's what happened where Mike was, instead of opening up and broadening, he just kept getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And you, you can't perform as a professional athlete or in professional sports if you're like that. We had a question right here in front, and then we'll go back over here to this side. And then we probably ought to end with those so we can be true to our time. Excuse me, Ken Hewing. So you've built this team of experts into an expert team. You've got a, you've got a learning organization, and they're collaborating with each other and, and compounding into some, some great successes. So you take a step back and you go, um, what is the long-term vision that you're looking to describe? Describe the short-term vision. And yeah. you knew what you needed to do. You knew what you, where you wanted to get. But when you look at how to brand the team, how to expand the brand, the franchise, how to uh, grow your market, you know, how to build onto your success into something of a you know, greater legacy, what's the long-term vision that you're sharing with your team and your, and your members of your staff of where you want to get to in, a, in the five, 10-year time frame? Don't, don't forget a very lucky management team, too. And that, that can't be overlooked. And I, I, you know, I think we've taken advantage of luck, and I think we've, we've been in a good position. But when I look at the long-term management of the San Francisco 49ers, you know, it's really about winning with class. And it's about continuing to put on you know, a team that can compete for championships. And a lot of that is getting a stadium built. Once the stadium is up and running, then it's how do you take this collection of people that, you know what, it's probably not going to be that exciting for a guy like Gideon or a guy like Canal to, you know, figure out, you know, should we raise ticket prices by 2% or 3% this year? You know, so you want to find the right managers for the business of the 49ers, but you want to keep the core and the essence the same. Then you want to take that management team and say, okay, what else can we do? 
what else can we build? So if we are going to you know, look at the technology and we're going to change technology in, in sports, you know, that might be a decent business. You know, if we're going to take this and look at other potential teams out there, you know, how do you take this and revamp another team in the Bay Area or somewhere else? So you, you have to continue to keep that carrot out there for your team so you can keep those good people around because it's not, there's a great, I, I don't know if you saw, Dick Costello retweeted um, a TED talk about management and, 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 and your work environment. And he talked about the, the TED talk, not Dick, but the TED talk was talking about, you know, it's not just, you know, I'll pay you more money, I'll double your salary. At some point, that doesn't matter. Once you can put food on the table for your family and you can have a house, like, you know, do you really need, you know, 2x the house, 3x the house, this, that, the private plane, all that? That's not what drives people. What drives people is that competitive spirit. And, you know, how can you continue to invent and, and do things creatively and continue to push yourself? That's what we're trying to do is continue to push ourselves, but realize that the 49ers, that's the core. That's the centerpiece. That's the anchor of the business. Now what can you do from, from around the San Francisco 49ers? My grandfather went from real estate to the 49ers sort of being the feather in the cap. We're sort of reversed. Now how do you take the 49ers and make that your anchor and start building other things? Right over here. We'll end with this question so we can be respectful of everyone's time this evening. Um, my question was kind of geared toward how do you translate that family business that the Niners is all, has always been, it seems, into um, the greater NFL structure, which seems to be somewhat divided between you know players and um, management, if you want to call it that way. Because it seems like you know in hiring Jim that you've really tried to bring in a player's coach. And how do you work within that as an organization to instill that culture? Well, I think, I mean, we can spend hours and hours on this. But when you look at your players, I think my uncle did a great job. And it was a little easier when you didn't have a salary cap to pay your players more money. But that's not, again, that's not what the players loved about my uncle. They loved the fact that when their wife gave birth, like, he was sending flowers. He was sending food to their house. He was doing those type of things. And unfortunately, those are things that are now sort of salary cap violations, so you have to be very careful about doing those things. And I mean, it's, it's crazy that something like that could be a violation, but it's, it's true. So you have to find ways to creatively get involved with your, your, your players and their families. And know that when you take a 22-year-old, and you know, Alden Smith is a great example. Alden Smith came out, I think he was 21 when we drafted him. Came out as a junior, in col a junior of college, and you know, he's 21, you make millions of dollars, now you have all kinds of people coming at you. Imagine yourself at 21, and you have people asking you for money to buy a house, to buy a car, to start a business. And you know, I'm not using now Alden as an, ex you know, that was sort of the, the age example, but not him in, in the overall sense. But you have all these guys that they don't know how to deal with that. They don't know how to deal with people asking them for money. You know, we have players where, they're, they're paying their parents a stipend every month and buying a house, and then it's, well, yeah, but we need this, and this isn't, you know, it's not covered in the money that you're giving us. And, you know, how do you say no to your parents? So you have to sit down and teach guys that. When you look at the long-term effects of playing in the NFL, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, concussions cause bad things. 
okay, like I can buy that. But it's concussions combined with not knowing how to manage your finances. So when you go from being a superstar on Friday nights to being a superstar on Saturday afternoons to being a superstar on Sunday and Monday, you know, how do you go from that and making tons of money to nothing? You're not there. Nobody's cheering for you anymore. Nobody's giving you a paycheck anymore. Now you have to go to a card show in Las Vegas and sign autographs to make you know, $20,000, where you used to make $20,000 the first four minutes you stepped on the field. So how do, you, how do you give players the ability to save their money, to be smart about their money? The, the most recent example, there was a guy that was scamming professional athletes. He was guaranteeing returns between 12 and 24% annually. So if somebody came to anybody in this room and said, if you give me your money, I'm, I'm going to get you a minimum of 12% this year and, and, and probably up to 24%. You say, okay, this is a scam. Like, I'm going to walk away. You know, our players didn't have the same education that a lot of the folks here did. So how do you get those guys to be protected from, from themselves and from the outside world and really build that up so that they trust you, that you do build a family environment? They do know that you're out for their own good and you know, you're, you're helping them succeed both on and off the field. We're in a great market in Northern California where we can reach out to some of the great companies here and say, hey, do you want Patrick Willis to be your private intern this summer as the CEO of XYZ Company? You want him to come and shadow you for a couple days? Like, yeah, like, where do I sign up? Like, how much do I pay? No, 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 like, you're doing Patrick a favor. Like, you're going to teach him how to be a leader in an in industry. And he might help you, but he wants to learn from you. So how do you make those connections? You know, how do you make connections to people in the Pepperdine Alumni Society and say, hey, you guys like the 49ers? Like, you want to you take a 49er to work day and like, teach, him how, <laughs> teach him how to do whatever it is that you do? We could work a deal out on and, that. And so, I yeah. mean, those are things that, that our players, they don't even know how to ask that question, but they're interested in it. So if we can make those connections to our suite holders, to our sponsors, to our club seat holders, to just fans in the Bay Area, you know, that's something that will, will show them, not that you just care, but you want to be there for them both on and off the field while they're playing for you and when they're done playing for you and keep them in the fold forever. And that's really what we try to do with our players. And I think that gives you a competitive advantage when you only have a finite amount of money that you can spend and everybody can spend the same amount. You know, that allows you to, to tell a guy, okay, your market is X, you know, we can pay you 80% of X, but if we do that with four or five guys, then we can go get the fifth or sixth guy. And if we can do that, then we can compete for Super Bowls even more. And you're going to be in this market, and we're going to have a great experience together. And I think guys buy into that because they know, they know it's sincere. Well, let me conclude with this question. As you kind of look to the future of the organization and what you're doing, so kind of two parts. What do you see as sort of the biggest risk or challenge that you're facing, and what do you look forward to as sort of the greatest opportunity that you have ahead? I think the, the two risks are, number one, getting ahead of yourself and thinking, you know, we've had success and, you know, we're always going to be at this level, and it's just easy to stay at this level. It's not. You have to keep working. You have to keep grinding, and you have to keep pushing yourself. The other is something that's probably just out of my control you know, we're about to, you know, finish our financing and get long-term financing. We have construction financing that runs through the first year after the stadium is open. So I feel very confident that our financing is, is in a good spot. We have more contractually obligated income than the value of our debt. So I feel like we're in a good place. 
but I have no idea what's going to happen in international markets. Right. I don't think that rates are going to go down. So you certainly want to go out and lock in rates for the long term right now. Mm -hmm. So it's really, can you beat the clock? Right. So that's really out of our control, but we're trying to kind of manage the we're trying to manage risk, yeah. the long term. And then when you're looking at, at goals, you know, the things that I'm most excited about, you know, we've talked about the experience in the stadium, but we haven't we haven't had actually anybody experience the experience in the stadium. And that's really to me, I think it's I think people will be blown away by going to a game in the new football stadium because you know, nobody will experience sports the way that they're going to experience them here. And you're going to make sure that electricity stays on all the way through from that's, kickoff that's, that's, to the end of the game. That's why we've got. Yeah. That's why we've got uh, the power station here and all the <laughs> all the solar panels and everything. So the the lights sort of follow me around. They, they turn off a candlestick at the Super Bowl, you know. And that's always really fun when you're losing 28 to six in front of 100 million people, and they decide to hit pause. That's always that's always a really really fun yeah. experience. Well, Jed, thank you so much for being with us. It's been thank a wonderful you. evening, and we really appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.